0: there. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I don't know if you ever uh, if you knew who that was. How many have listened on the radio? Oh, that's fun. So someone called up yesterday and said, I sound so much younger on the radio. When they saw what I looked like, they thought, man, he's old. But I want you to know I am younger on the radio. I'm also taller. I have far more hair on the radio. And so uh, you get to see the other me, the non-radio me. I'm really, really glad to be with you. I'm grateful uh, for our chance to be together. We're uh, talking about God, are you there for the next three weeks? And today we want to grapple with the problem of evil. To begin, I, I want to read to you from Elie Wiesel, who was the, is the Nobel Prize winning author of Night, He's a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote his memoir, and he talked about the impact of seeing uh, children murdered at, at, at Buchenwald. He says, never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the little faces of the children whose bodies I saw turned into wreaths of smoke beneath the silent blue sky. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. This is one man's response to the Holocaust, having lived through that horrific time, seen his family lost. It caused him at that time to lose his faith in God. And... Both my parents are Holocaust survivors. And so I was raised with the very same issue of where was God in all the suffering of the Holocaust? My dad completely lost his faith. Although he was an observant Jew, he didn't believe in God. My mom was a, a, a believer, and she, she did not lose her faith. But they did talk about the Holocaust all the time. Some Holocaust survivors never talk about the Holocaust to their kids. My parents seemed to only talk about the Holocaust. And I'd always overhear them. And in fact, we lived in a neighborhood with all these other Holocaust survivors. So as I grew up, I thought that when you grew up, you got a Yiddish accent, because all the adults seemed to have a Yiddish accent. I also thought that when you became an adult, they put a tattoo of a number on your arm, because all the adults had tattoos. And I was always struggling with this pain that my parents had gone through. Uh, And, of course, it had had effects on me. Uh, Once I said to my dad, I don't like this supper that my mom had prepared. And he said, let me tell you what what supper was like in concentration camp. I learned, I'm not going to say that one again. (laughs) Uh, Also, uh, when I was about nine years old, my mom said to me, you know, this summer I think we're going to send you to camp. I'd been listening to them talk about the camps forever. I thought, oh no, I don't think so. But the main impact that being raised as a Holocaust survivor's kid was for me was struggling with this issue of how could God have allowed that? How could he have allowed such suffering? You know, that's a really big issue but we all struggle with this issue in a sense. When we see a tsunami, a typhoon, an earthquake, and we see the devastation and the suffering in people's lives, we say, God, how can you allow that? And we see it on a personal level. You know, we might have had a really bad medical diagnosis, or we may have lost a loved one, a parent, a spouse, even a child. And as we look at all these different issues, we say, God... I hurt so badly. How can you really be here? And so what I want to address is uh, an issue uh, for this week and the next two weeks that is really, it's been called theodicy. Not like Homer's theodicy, but theodicy. It's from the word theos, God, DK, justice. Where is God's justice with all the evil in the world? Now here's how I want to go about doing it today uh, as we grapple with this issue. First of all, I would like to start with the options for explaining evil in this world. And after we talk about the options, then I want to look at some perspectives on evil. And then after we look at perspectives, even look at some benefits of evil. Okay, so let's start with the options. Uh, If we start with the option, we have to start with a prayer that you may have heard. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for this food. This doesn't seem appropriate, but... uh, Uh, a great theologian in his book on theology starts with the discussion of evil with this phrase. And uh, I thought, well, he's right. Because you see, in this little phrase, God is great, God is good, it gives us all four options. So for example, if we take the first two words, God is, and we deny it, then we have our first option, that evil exists and there is no God. That was the effect that this had on Elie Wiesel. And uh, now he actually has come around late in life, and he, he believes in God again. But for many years, he did not. For my own father, who was an observant Jew, when I became a follower of Jesus and we talked, he says, what difference does it make? When I saw all this evil, he says, I concluded there is no God. And so when I think about it, for him, even though he was practicing Judaism, he didn't even believe in God. And so... How do I respond to this? Well, first of all, if there is no God, where did this world come from? I learned this in uh, grade school science, that every effect has a cause. And if we keep going back and back and back, what will we find? We'll find that there's a first cause. This is the cosmological argument. It's used in Romans 1 when Paul says the whole creation testifies that there is a creator. I have no other explanation for the creation. And then also there's the argument of design. None of us believes that there was a, a, uh, an explosion in a factory and out came this watch. We know there was a designer. And the smallest human cell has more design in it than the greatest computer on earth. And so we know there has to be a designer on this earth, for this earth. And so the intricate design of the world makes it impossible for us to accept this first option. So we go to a second option, and that is God is, so God exists, and we must deny that evil exists. God exists, and there is no evil. This is denial of reality, not a denial of God. You see, there are many people who say when we face evil, it's all in our heads, that we think of it, that there really isn't evil on earth, we just it's in our mindset, it's in our thinking. Uh this is actually one of the explanations for sickness and evil in Christian scientism, which says it's all in our head, it doesn't really exist. And uh I don't mean any disrespect, but I love this story about a little boy walking down the street, he goes by a Christian science reading room, and he sees a man coming out, and the man says, Hey, how's your grandfather? And the little boy says, My grandfather's really sick. He says, Oh, no, 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 he's not sick. He only thinks he's sick. And the boy says, Oh, okay. A couple of weeks later, he's walking down the street, sees the same man. The man says, well, how's your grandfather doing now? He says, he thinks he's dead. <laughs> we can't deny the reality that there are really bad things happening. So that option's no good. So we go to a third one, which says, you know, the phrase says, God is great, God is good. So the third option is God is great, but he's not good. This view sees God as an amoral force the God of Star Wars, neither good nor bad. Or it sees him, even worse, as an evil God. That's Satanism. That God is all-powerful, but he's wicked. Now, if God were evil, or even amoral, then we would not know what virtue is. You see, the reason we know what virtue is, what good is, is because we have an ultimate standard that is born inherent in each and every one of us. So, for example, if God were amoral, we wouldn't. There would be no good or bad in the world, and yet we instinctively know that there is good and bad in the world. If God were evil, then we would be calling everything evil that is evil good, because God would be the evil God. That would be the standard of what righteousness is, and so and we would be calling everything good evil. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, in fact, this is so instinctive, so inherent in human beings, it explains the very first words that children speak. After mama, daddy, what is it? It's not fair! <laughs> because they understand that there is a just God. It's inherent with us. So this answer doesn't help us. A fourth option is where it says God is good. That's, that's affirmed in that little prayer. But he is not great. It denies the other part of it. God is good, but he is not great. This is an impotent God. This is the answer of Rabbi Harold Kushner in his book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he suffered greatly at the loss of his son, and he decided that God really cared. God was was pained by the loss of his son, and he's trying to get better at helping. But so far, he can't do anything. This view says that the God who created the world is not powerful enough to stop evil. But he's getting better. He's improving. Uh, when I was 13 and my parents started to have some marital problems and I was going through enough teenage angst as could be, I was given for my bar mitzvah a gift of a collie. And I loved this collie and he's a wonderful dog. And he was such a compassionate dog. And I, you know, as a, the next year or so, with all that teenage angst and all that sorrow and the sadness I felt in my life and the question of why my parents went through the Holocaust, I would sometimes go into my room and I would just feel sad. I'd put on the music and I would just feel so badly. And my dog would hop up on the bed next to me and he sensed the sorrow I felt and the pain that I felt. And he put his head in my lap and, and he, I knew he wanted to comfort me. But you know what? He couldn't do anything. He could sympathize, but he couldn't do anything. This is what Kushner's God is. This is the impotent God. Who cares? But he can't do anything. It reduces God to the level of my collie. That's not an acceptable God. So none of these options actually are good options. Which leads me to this conclusion. This is where we have to live. That God is. He does exist. He is good. And he is great. And evil exists. We have to live with that tension. And it's true. Now, to help us try and live with this, I want to give us some perspectives on evil, Some ways to think about evil. Now, here's the first perspective. Humanity has responsibility for evil. Humanity actually has accountability about this. In the very first book of the Bible, very early on, Cain wants to kill his brother. And God says to him, If you do what is right, this is Genesis 4-7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. We are all created with the responsibility to do what is good. And in fact, if we didn't have that responsibility, then we'd be robots, We have a responsibility to do good. And with that responsibility to do good, there comes the possibility of doing evil. And most of us do it. And many times when we see suffering in the world, it's because of the actions of evil people. People often ask me, where was God when the six million died? And my response is, God was weeping over the horror and evil that people did. The question ought not to be, where was God? The question ought to be, where was man? Humanity has responsibility for evil before God. So that's one perspective. Here's a second one. There are no good people. Now, that's hard for us to accept. But in reality, there are no really good people. Here's what the Bible has to say about good people. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, it says, There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right... And never sins. This is what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind our sins sweep us away. Our goodness really is relative. Now think about this. You know, We don't really look at each other as if we're evil people. We look at each other as best we can. In fact, this morning we got up. We looked in the mirror. I know I did and thought, man, I look awful. And I've got to go speak in front of these people. You have to come meet people. So what do we do? We shower, right? We brush our teeth, get rid of the bad breath. We shave. At least some of the women, I don't know, men maybe, we do shave. Uh, men shave. Uh, We all shave and we look nice so we don't have any stubble on our beard. And then we put on deodorant and we smell good and perfume or cologne. And we make ourselves look really good. But if you could see inside my heart, you would know that I am not a good person. If I could look inside your heart, I would hate to see what's there. Because we like the superficial presentation of niceness. When in our hearts, we're thinking all sorts of bad thoughts, we have bad attitudes, we we don't like people, we're unkind to people, we're not gracious to people. We are people who cover up. So really the question we talk about the problem of evil is this. We should be asking, why do bad things happen to some people who aren't quite as bad as others? (laughs) I mean, really, no one here I'm suspecting is a mass murderer. ...or a serial killer. But really, there are no good people. So that's a second perspective. And then thirdly, our experiences do not always match our behavior... ...because we live in an evil world. We sometimes forget that the whole earth was cursed when Adam sinned. And this is an evil world that we live in. So, for example... In Romans 8.22, this is what it says. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This world is cursed. There's no getting around it. And that's why there's so much evil in it. And sometimes bad things happen to people not because of what that person, that individual person has done, but just because they live in this evil world. Think of it this way. Imagine a huge toxic waste pool. And what we have to do is we have to uh, dump our own sin into that toxic waste pool. So if you can imagine, here I come, I've got a dump truck full of evil, and I pull it up to that pool and I pour all my evil into it. I pull the lever, it drops in there. Then Julie Chapel, who arranged for me to speak here, she pulls up and she's got her bucket She pours her evil in. Then my wife Eva comes. She's got her thimble. (laughs) Right? Now, this is where we live. And so I say, well, where do we drink? That pool. And so, okay, I know what I just put in there. I'm going over here. And I'm gonna drink from here. I don't even know what sins I'm drinking from there, because we live in a cursed world filled with the sins that we have put into it. So sometimes a person might experience bad things and suffering there, not because of anything particular that they've done, but rather because it's a cursed world. Now, a fourth perspective on evil is this without evil, we would not truly understand. What is good? It's sort of a teaching tool that God has used. You know, if there never had been any evil, we wouldn't know how we ought to behave. It teaches us virtue. You say, how could that be? Well, I used to watch Sesame Street with my kids. And I, I, I liked Sesame Street, actually. I think I liked it more than my kids. But there was this character, Oscar the Grouch. And I finally complained to my wife. I said, why do they have this character? He's so awful, he's got a bad attitude, he's mean. And, and I said, you know, they ought to be teaching good values to our kids, not having Oscar the Grouch. And my wife would say, no, 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 Michael. It's because they want to teach kids good values, they want to see what they don't want to be, what they don't want to act like. And so Oscar the Grouch is there to teach us what, how we should behave. In the same way, evil is in this world because it teaches us What what is good? It gives us a better understanding about what is good. We know what kind of world we really want when we see evil. We want one without evil. That's what we're looking for. It teaches us virtue. So I have one more perspective that will help us about evil. And this is it. The best of all possible worlds is not one without evil but one in which evil has been overcome. God is perfect. He wants what is best. And the best world is is a world in which evil no longer exists. But it did exist. You see, there are some virtues that we will only know if there has been evil. For example, we would never know sacrifice or courage if there hadn't been loss and and danger. And so... We understand that better. Moreover, we know what it will be like when the world is created and all those evil things have been taken away. This is what Revelation 21 verse 4 says. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. We would never comprehend the glory of those verses if we didn't live in a world in which there had been evil. The best of all possible worlds is not a world in which evil never existed, but one in which evil has been overcome. Now, in light of that, I actually think that God has some benefits for us when it comes to evil. God has some things that will do us good. Here's the first benefit of evil. Evil turns our attention to God. It says in Psalm 120 verse 1, I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. That's sort of the picture of a foxhole. And how many people facing danger in a foxhole have turned to God? And many of us have faced a lot of different kinds of foxholes. But it is those dangerous situations where we're knocked flat on our back where we turn to God. It is... uh, Situations like a bankruptcy, a failed business, a loss of a spouse, a terrible sickness, a really bad accident. And in those circumstances, we say, I can't do this alone. And we turn to God. God allows evil because he wants to get our attention. This is what C.S. Lewis said God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God gets our attention when bad things happen. Now, if everything were ever perf- always perfect in this world, how many of us would have ever turned to the Lord? Not many. So evil turns our attention to God. Second benefit of evil is evil creates heroes. Now in two weeks I'll be speaking from Hebrews chapters eleven thirty-two 32 through 40, but I just want to mention something from that passage. In Hebrews eleven thirty-two 32 and following, it talks about all these great heroes of faith, how some shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, right? They, they receive back their dead to life again. Yeah, And then in verse 36, it takes a turn. And this is what the writer of Hebrew says. And others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute persecuted and mistreated the world was not worthy of these people they wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground you know when i read that verse i think lord i want to be a person of faith but i want to be a person of faith that shuts the mouths of lions please i don't want to go through that suffering But the real heroes are those who continue to live faithfully even in the face of suffering. I learned this lesson because I grew up with my mom. She was just a regular mom. In fact, she was a stereotypical Jewish mom. My mom, I mean, I always felt guilty. She was the kind of mom that would buy me two shirts and I'd come downstairs wearing one of them and she'd say, what, you didn't like the other one? Now, she was really a nice person, and she was really hospitable and kind and generous, and everyone wanted to always be at our house because she was so much fun. But she was just a regular person. When I got older, I found out something that she had done in concentration camp. She was an RN, and the Nazis allowed her to have an infirmary in concentration camp at Gross Rosen. And that infirmary consisted of a bunk with straw on it that had been infected with typhoid and she was given 50 aspirin per month and if someone were too sick to work they would come to the infirmary and she had to give a report of the serial numbers of each person who came to the infirmary and what she knew was that on the second day if a person reported two or three days in a row with illness that person would be transferred and taken to their deaths because a sick person was not worthy of staying alive in concentration camp. And so my mom, who was great with numbers, kept all these serial numbers in her head and every day reported different serial numbers. There was never a person who was there two days in a row because she believed the greatest responsibility she had was to preserve the life of those people. Now, here's what also she knew. She knew that if... The SS caught her. They would strip her naked in front of that whole camp and hang her with piano wire as a lesson to the whole camp never to lie to the SS. Now, when I think about my mom in that way, I realize how brave she was, how determined she was to save people. It is only in the face of seeing my mom in that ultimate evil place that she becomes a hero. When I was leading a congregation, there was a woman in our congregation who had a mastectomy for breast cancer. Uh, she was a single mom. her husband was abusive. she was raising a, a toddler on her own. And then, when she went for her seven-week checkup, they found a different kind of cancer in her other breast. She then had a second surgery, and she was on radiation and chemotherapy and all these different things. Her head was gone, hair was gone. And she was so faithful and trusted God in this awful circumstance that one of the biggest, toughest guys in my congregation came up to me. He said, you know, I want to be like Irene. Irene is my hero. It is faith in the face of suffering that creates heroes. Evil creates heroes. Evil also produces maturity. Here's what uh, Romans 5 says. It says in verse 3, Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which He has given us. The point of this is that if we're going to grow into mature people, what God uses to grow us is suffering. And difficulties, we know how that is. If we want to become buff, what do we do? We have to work out. We have to experience the pain of lifting weights. If we want to become great runners and run long distances, what do we have to do? We have to run and experience that stress of running in the same way. If we're going to become mature, we need to experience suffering. Here's a fourth benefit. Evil reminds us, that we're not home yet. Evil reminds us that we're not home. You see, this is a very temporal, temporal, transitory world. This is where we live. And yet, it is not the end of our lives. We have an eternal home. We're just pilgrims passing through. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, I consider the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, in our true home. If we did not have suffering in this world, we'd never want to go home. If everything were perfect, we'd be satisfied here. We wouldn't want to go to our eternal place. Think about this. Imagine you're taking a flight with me. I sit down next to you and, uh, hello, how are you? And then I reach into my briefcase as the plane takes off. You get out your iPad, you know. I reach into my briefcase. I take out a picture of my family and a hammer and nails, hang it up on the... T- the, the, the table in front of me my tray table and then what I do is I get out a little can of paint and I paint it to be the color I want it to be and then I go I take my briefcase I go to the bathroom I come back I'm wearing my slippers my pajamas a robe and I have some flowers that I've put around you say like, you're crazy this is a two hour flight you're acting like you're never leaving well that's what we do We lay down really deep roots and never want to leave here. It's only suffering that reminds us that we want to go home, that we want to go to our true home. So those are some benefits of evil and suffering. Now, in light of all this, how do we respond to evil? What should we do in the face of living in an evil world? Well, here's the first response. We should respond with repentance In other words, we need to recognize that we are part of the problem with the evil in this world. Here's what Isaiah wrote in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We need to recognize that some of the evil on this earth, we have a part in. We're part of the problem. And so when we see evil, we need to be reminded of our own evil and repent. We need to start with ourselves. We should respond with repentance. Here's a second response. We should respond to evil with resistance. We need to stop evil as best we can, any way we can. It says in Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, "'Rescue those being led away to death. "'Hold back those staggering towards slaughter.'" If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? It's not enough for us to recognize that there's evil in the world. We need to get up and do something about it. We need to do whatever we can. We need to be salt and light in this world to stop its corruption we need to act here's a third response we should respond with compassion that's why romans twelve fifteen says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn weep with those who weep how do we do that well here's a story about a uh, a rabbi and his student the student comes to him and he says rabbi oh master i love you the rabbi responded with a question Tell me, how do you you know what hurts me? The student was confused. He was bewildered. He, He didn't know what to make of this, and he said, Why do you ask me such a question when I've just told you that I love you? And the old rabbi shook his head and said, Because, my friend, if you do not know what hurts me, if you do not know what gives me pain, how can you truly love me? If we love people, we will show compassion to them. You know, I know a lot of us here lead with our heads. Some of us do, at least. And that means we like the answers I gave earlier. But others of us lead with our hearts. And all the explanations I can give are unsatisfactory because it still hurts. It's like a little boy who sticks his finger in an outlet. And he gets a terrible shock, and his mom comes over and picks him up. And she says, now let me tell you, while he's crying out in pain, let me tell you how electricity works. Well, what I've basically done is explain to you how electricity works. But really, what people need is a hug. They need compassion. They need to be loved. We need to weep with those who weep. Well, that's sort of a, a starting point for grappling with the problem of evil. But I want to end on this note. Dorothy Sayers said whatever else can be said about the problem of evil, this much must be understood. God took his own medicine. God loved us so much that what he did is he became a man. And he experienced evil in this life. He even experienced the evil of the cross. So when God puts his arm around a suffering person and he says, I know what hurts you. I know what breaks your heart. I know the pain you feel. He knows it experientially. And that makes it all the more reason for us to receive that comfort. He invites us to receive his loving compassion. Let's pray. God, you alone are faithful. And you know even more deeply than we do how evil this world is. And you experienced it through the Son. You know the pain of loss and losing your Son... And you know the future and the glory that will be when evil is overcome. And thank you, God, for giving us your comfort, being with us in our pain, being afflicted in all our afflictions. For this we give you praise and we take your comfort. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.